If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. She is, in a sense, a revolutionary figure. She is, in the end, her mother's daughter. And she does live at that very interesting time when enlightenment has shifted fully into romanticism. And what does that mean in all sorts of areas? I mean, what does that mean to do with society and politics? What does that mean to do with science? What does that mean to do with art and aesthetics? And, you know, obviously her life and her work touches all those areas. That was Fiona Sampson talking about the Frankenstein author Mary Shelley. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For today's episode, we're going to hear from Fiona Sampson, a poet and author whose most recent book, tells the remarkable life story of the Georgian writer Mary Shelley. She spoke to our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. Um, So we're here in rural Herefordshire with Fiona Sampson. Hi, Fiona. Hello. Um, So you're a poet primarily and a writer, but you've turned your hand to biography to write about the unorthodox life of Mary Shelley. Yes, that's right. And I'm I'm sure for me the life almost comes before the work. 
So this book is going to be published in January 2018, which coincides with the 200 years since uh, Frankenstein was published. Yes, that's right. I think that Mary Shelley is um, in some ways incredibly celebrated and well-known and in some ways not nearly celebrated enough and not well-known enough. And obviously she's really celebrated for Frankenstein. And a bit of me feels almost that we should have published this book at any other time so that we wouldn't reinforce this story about Mary as the author of Frankenstein as though she were a one-hit wonder. On the other hand, the story of Frankenstein is fascinating because it was written by someone who was so young. I mean, she was a teenager when she wrote it. And because it's a story that has so much traction because it's she invented really two archetypes. She invented the archetype of the, the mad or irresponsible scientist who goes for blue sky thinking and doesn't think about the ethical consequences of what he does. And she gives us the consequences, the nearly human Frankenstein's creature who threatens us because he's human and not human at the same time. And I'm sure that the reason the, the book has had such an impact on us is because of this incredible feat of, of creating these two archetypes. So that's a great reason to pin her life to the book, although she wrote it early on in her life and she lived to be 53, so she had decades after she'd written it. So as you said, you suggested earlier that her life almost comes before her work for you. Can you give us a, a brief introduction to Mary Shelley and, and tell us why you think that a new biography of her is um, pressing or interesting or needed? I think that it's probably, uh, her life story is probably one of those stories that needs to be revisited every couple of decades. Just as Frankenstein gets reinvented by every generation, so does Mary Shelley. And I think that one of the things that's shifted in biography nowadays is that we are interested in not only the sequence of facts, not only the sense of knowing with really a lot of detail, particularly given it's 200 years ago, exactly where Mary Shelley was on any particular day and what she was doing, because, of course, there are journals and letters, but knowing in a more three-dimensional, the-facts-are-not-enough kind of way. There's nothing in my book that hasn't got a researched source, but um, I try to ask myself common-sense questions about, well, how would that be for her then? Um, now, of course, we can't go into the mind of, well, anybody else. Um, the turn of the start of the 19th century is very different from Britain today. But there are some things that are common. For example, um, how do you cope with infidelity in a marriage? How do you cope with the death of children? Those are the big picture things. And then there are small picture things like What's it like growing up in a new-build house on the edge of a housing estate? Um, what's it like being part of a generation who are who see themselves as modernising or recreating science? So I tried to go back and close-read the sources. So from this close analysis of the sources, do you get a sense of what Mary was like as a person? Yes, and I'm glad you asked that because I, I do have strong feelings about that. I think because she was the daughter of her parents, who were William Godwin, the philosopher, and Mary Wollstonecraft, the feminist feminist philosopher, one can say, 
And because she was the wife of Percy Bysshe Shelley and because she was friends with Byron and, and so on, traditionally, let's say in the 20th century, Mary Shelley's reception was very two-dimensional. She was good or bad for Percy is really what it comes down to. Um, and I think the legacy of that is that we still have a slight tendency to think of her in a sort of two-dimensional way as if she were a character, not a person. Of course she was a person. She really existed. And so she was all the things the rest of us are, inconsistent, um, nuanced, complex. She had been brought up really to be a good girl. You know, she was a good girl. And she never quite could get her head around the way that in eloping, let's say eloping, even though they didn't get married straight away with Percy, um, at the age of 16, she entered into what we'd now call Bohemia, uh, you know, a community who believed in free love and so on. And she'd, she'd gone to the other camp and was regarded as kind of, you know, those who live by the sword die by the sword. You know, if you, if you choose to live by those rules, well, why should your husband be faithful to you and so on? And I think she could never get her head around that because she thought that that was a philosophical ideal. I, she was being a good girl in following the ideal of, um, you know, eloping, of not, of not being married to Percy and then marrying him, but, you know, trying to cope with an open relationship. For her, it was... She was, in a sense, always striving to get high marks, as it were, from her father. You know, she was, she'd, she'd been a very booky child and teenager and, you know, precocious, her father being proud of her for that. And she thought she was following his ideas and kind of out-radicalising her mother and father, whom she'd been taught to admire, I mean, her late mother and her father. And she... I think could never quite understand and the people around her could never understand that she wasn't self-willed and spontaneous like many of those around her. She was conscientious. Conscientiousness is a really funny thing because it leaves really funny contradictory trails. But above all, that's what I believe she was. She was conscientious, she was a loyal friend, she was a loyal wife, she was a good mother, I mean an excellent mother, a doting, you know, committed mother. She was a very hard worker. She was a devoted daughter. She had all these excellences, which were very old-fashioned virtues, in fact. But because she had this bohemian lifestyle, they were all discounted, they were all misread by those around her. As you say, so she eloped age 16 with the poet-philosopher Percy Shelley, mm -hmm. who was married, he had a child, he was yeah. five years older. Do you think that she wasn't fully aware of the implications that was going to have for the rest of her life in that she became socially ostracised. Yes. I think she absolutely had no notion. I think, I mean, they were both surprised when they came back to London when their money ran out from the six weeks tour of Europe, uh, which is, of course, is also the title of her first book. Uh, they were astonished that Godwin didn't welcome them with open arms and that their friends in London didn't. So, yes, I think she had no notion of consequences. I think she might have done it anyway, but maybe she wouldn't have done because, of course, she hesitated on the brink of, it, of, of running away, of getting in the coach with Percy. So, no, I don't think she would have done. And I think something that your book is really good at uh, reminding of, us of is the fact that when all this transpired and these were the kind of monumental events of uh, Mary's life, she was still so incredibly young. Um, why do you think that was so important to hammer home? Well, I think one of the things that her incredible youth does is remind us really how gifted she was. Um, you know, she isn't just an outcome of her, her time. 
Sure, she's a creature of her background so that she actually had an education and she had books and so on in the house because of her father's library, because of her father being this great philosopher and so on. But there's also what she brings it to, to it too. And she is writing this book when, as you say, she has the, the, she has the idea in 1816 when she's um, still a, a teenager, she's still very young, and there's a kind of compression about the whole thing. The book isn't published till the 1st of January 1818, but she finishes it, you know, quite early on in 1817. It takes a while to get published. She finds it hard to find a publisher. Um, so she's she's written, writing it really in about nine months. Meanwhile, she's got a child. You, you know, so much is going on in her life at that time. They're moving about, they've moved back from uh, Geneva, they moved to Bath. Um, her stepsister is having a baby, you know, all these things are going on. And meantime, she's writing this extraordinary novel and she's experimenting with form. She's learning how to write a novel. She's reading lots of novels. All of this is such an extraordinary and condensed feat. You know, we think of Jane Austen, you know, at Chawton, writing her novels sitting in the, her, a little table in the hall in between, you know, domestic tasks. But actually, it wasn't really different from Mary Shelley. You know, she too was having to do that. And meanwhile, you know, she's incredibly young. How did she have the concentration and the certainty to do it? Particularly as the messages surrounding her are not supportive. You know, they are, oh, Percy's the great gifted one. They are, oh, Byron's gifted and famous. They are, her father's distinguished. You know, she's a, she could so easily have been just the kind of paste to hold the sandwich together. And she manages not to be. I think it's an extraordinary achievement. The story of how she came up with the initial idea for Frankenstein has kind of gone down in history. Can you set the scene for us? Yes. She and Percy have gone to Geneva to um, see Byron because Mary's stepsister, Claire, who is such a big part of her story who in the early years, who who causes so many bad things to happen. In this case, makes a good thing happen because Claire's already slept with Byron and she wants to capture Byron and have her own famous poet. So, astonishingly, she persuades Percy and Mary to trek across Europe to Geneva to spend the summer uh, near to um, Byron, who, who actually arrives just after them. He arrives a few weeks after them and uh, rents the Villa Diodati on the, on the shores of the lake. It's the year without a summer because of volcanic eruption and um, so actually thousands are starving across Europe. Um, you know, it's, it's extraordinarily cold. There are red skies. I mean, it's a time of signs and wonders, as it were. And the group get together and one evening and start reading each other horror stories. Horror stories are very fashionable at the time, particularly in Germany. Um, they're called Shudder novels there. Lovely name, Shower Roman. Um, in England at the time, it's more kind of gothic novels, which are longer and so on. Um, so there's Byron, there's Polidori, um, Byron's doctor, who, as a result of the same um, house party, writes the first vampire story. There's Mary, there's Percy, and there's Claire. And the four of them, without Claire, all take up the challenge which Byron throws down of, let's write a, one of these ourselves. Um, Polidori writes The Vampire it's a short story but, but, but it's not published until a few years later and Mary starts Frankenstein both the poets give up quite early on interestingly um, and dismiss it 
it's the, it's funny that it's a writing competition. It's funny that it's a writing exercise that starts this great work. But at the same time, Mary doesn't ever read it at the house party. I mean, it's it's very much becomes a private thing almost immediately. Um, and then, alas, after having had a great summer and exploring the Alps and so on together, um, it becomes obvious that Claire is pregnant by Byron and Byron is pretty fed up by now with the Shelleys and, and Claire, um, who are sort of naive, they're vegetarian, they're a little bit tedious, and he's furious that Claire is pregnant by him. So the summer doesn't end that well. But the friendship with Byron survives which is great because Byron is one of the few figures around Mary who seems to respect her. So hurrah for Byron is what I say. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Um, as you've kind of mentioned throughout, Mary and Percy were very much in a very tangled web of romantic attachments across several years. Can you kind of give us a sense of how unusual this would have been at the time and the impact that that might have had on both of their work. To have affairs at the time was obviously a privilege of the gentry, but to be out about it, to advocate free love, um, was radical, so radical that um, it would cost Percy custody of his children by his first wife, Harriet, um, which was sort of unheard of at the time, that after Harriet killed herself, in large part because she'd been abandoned by Percy, although she was pregnant a third time, maybe by Percy, maybe not, um, Percy didn't get custody of his kids. And it was a very long, drawn-out case that um, there was kind of a scandal because, you know, it's really unusual for a member of the aristocracy, as Percy himself was, not to get custody of his kids, particularly when their mother has died. But, you know, Percy had already been sent down from Oxford for um, his 
defense of atheism. I mean, that itself was... So the free love, the atheism, a political revolution, a sort of revolutionary political orientation, let's say, um, were all unusual, the privilege of the wealthy, the independently wealthy and the educated. Also, uh, not a little bit hypocritical because Percy didn't renounce his title and go and live in poverty. Um, so, yes, it was very unusual. And so it's not surprising that even after Percy's death, when in 1822, when Mary came back to London a year later in 1823, she was still, even though she was by now the widow of, uh, you know, a member of the gentry and therefore her surviving child with um, by Percy Bysshe was was legitimised. Um, and in fact, he was born after they had married, so he was legitimate. Um, she uh, was not really given any kind of... She wasn't given a living subsistence from her father-in-law and she was still socially ostracised and it was very difficult for her to find writing work, mainly because she was a woman, but also because she was a scandalous woman. So her father-in-law um, wanted to take her son away from her and bring him up himself... But Mary resisted, and as a result, uh, Sir Timothy, her father-in-law, loaned her an allowance to keep young Percy, Percy Florence, um, and then proceeded to live into his 90s so that, <laughs> A, Percy Florence didn't, didn't inherit that much when his grandfather finally died, and B, you know, the kind of struggle to live, which obviously she'd thought would be temporary a year or two, had gone on for decades. Mary, of course, also, she suffered some really terrible losses. She lost three children and then her, as you mentioned earlier, her um, half-sister Fanny committed suicide and, of course, um, Percy drowned very young in a, in a boating accident. Mm. Can you trace um, kind of the impact of that on her life and work? I think the impact of the losses was enormous. I think that she... Um, I think that when she came back to London in 1823, although she missed Italy and longed to sort of go on holiday there or travel there, she led really a very solid, quiet life. She obviously had no instinct for adventure thereafter. And she she did have offers of marriage, which she, or at least suggestions of offers of marriage, which she didn't pursue. Um... I think she'd had a bellyful. She understood that, you know, risks entail risk um, and that if you want to survive, sometimes you need to hedge your bets because you're right. I mean, she'd lost three children. She'd also had a miscarriage, of course, shortly before Percy drowned. And no wonder she was quite happy to write anonymously. She, she didn't really understand why her big historical novels after Frankenstein didn't have the success they deserved. But... You know, her passion, her passion of hers was biography and um, I think she must have loved the sort of steady thoroughness of that work, writing these, the hugely the large part of the entries for two volumes of encyclopedias, of biographical encyclopedias. And I also wonder whether her interest in biography wasn't a little bit trying to work out life stories. You know, what's the pattern in the carpet, as Henry James says? You know, how do lives come together? What makes a successful life? You know, what makes a worthwhile life even? 
Shelley was a lot more than just the girl who wrote Frankenstein. As you've mentioned, she wrote um, big biographies, lots of other novels, and uh, edited throughout her life. Why do you think that the rest of this literary achievement has been swept under the carpet? We aren't particularly interested in that genre of novel nowadays anyway. I mean, we don't really read Walter Scott. (laughs) In fact, we don't really read Percy Bysshe Shelley, if it comes to that. Um, And so I think that it's sort of a a problem of timing that her rehabilitation as a novelist of who had a really interesting, substantial literary career and did that despite being a woman, and goodness knows that's hard enough now. It certainly was hard then. Um happens to coincide with the moment at which we're not terribly interested in that kind of big, steady, realist, historical costume drama. What do you think it is about Mary Shelley that still appeals? Do you think she is a a figure that appeals particularly to 21st century tastes because, as you say, she was a, she was a woman writer, she um, threw off the norms of the time... Um, do you think that that's a recent trend and why we might be seeing a lot more interest in her these days? Well, I hope we are going to see a lot more interest in her these days because I think she is actually a role model. I mean, personally, I would think of her as a role model apart from some rather bad decisions in her youth, you know, that she did make a literary life for herself and, frankly, without much help. I mean, you know, in her in her widowhood, which, of course, starts when she's 24, very young, um, she is very much looking after her father... I mean, he does have some contacts, but she's always promoting his, you know, trying to pitch books for him and so on. So it isn't as though many doors are open for her. She has to make a a literary career for herself. And that's very interesting because, you know, literature is is a story of, of the reception of talent as well as the reception of works. It's not just a a story of the making, the writing of books. And so I think that's very interesting. I think she was extremely pragmatic. I mean, some of the the sort of later biographies say things about her like, oh, you know, it's so embarrassing that she she pitched so hard. For example, she was always pitching to John Murray because he was a friend of her father's, including biographical books. He never accepted any of her pictures. But that's kind of what you have to do if you want to be published. It's still the case nowadays. And if you haven't got someone doing it for you, you still have to do it nowadays. And you have to not think of it as embarrassing. You have to get on and do it. You have to roll up your sleeves and do it. And that practical she wasn't a kind of fey floaty lady she was she rolled up her sleeves and she did things I think that's very interesting I think she's also interesting because she's mysterious and mixed and I think she's also interesting I suppose then finally because of the time she lived in you know she is she is in a sense, a revolutionary figure. She is, in the end, her mother's daughter, and she does live at that very interesting time when you know, the Enlightenment has has shifted fully into Romanticism. And what does that mean in all sorts of areas? I mean, what does that mean to do with society and politics? What does that mean to do with science? What does that mean to do with art and aesthetics? And, you know, obviously her life and her work touches all those areas. So she's a kind of a marker for all those for all those areas. I mean, when she was a child, her mother, her late mother was notorious because of her own political writing and because of the biography Mary's father had written about her. Mary's father was also both famous and notorious. His big um, work of political theory had already been published and he was just entering, in a sense, a period of professional and intellectual decline, professional decline intellectually going out of fashion. But 
they these were really famous figures um sort of the equivalent i suppose of a media don nowadays um so all sorts of people came to the house people like um so blake was a friend of mary's mother um samuel taylor Coleridge came to the house and read the rhyme of the ancient mariner and the story about mary hiding child mary hiding under the sofa to hear this and being discovered but being allowed to stay and being terrified by it um so she grew up um surrounded by this kind of sense that it was normal to have these figures. Humphrey Davy, the inventor of the Davy lamp, and one of the the scientists who, uh, at that time, really developed the uses of electricity, was a family friend. There was a whole community of publishers around St Paul's Churchyard who were all friends, who used to come to the house. And she's surrounded by the the people who are making the ideas and the culture of her day. So what do you think is something um, that has been forgotten about Mary Shelley that we need to bring back to the light? Lots of small details have forgotten about it, been forgotten about Mary, which add up to quite a lot. In her teens, she acquired a skin disease which was so severe that she sort of lost the use of one arm presumably because it was you know scabby or whatever and was sent away from home for her health um a lot i mean she was sent to ramsgate when the year when she's 13 turning 14 and then she's sent away to scotland for really sort of two years in total and you know skin disease is not a great thing to have particularly in your teens, where it's not terribly good for your self-esteem, you know. Um, also, there's a sense that at this time, skin people hadn't really quite distinguished between sort of eczema, psoriasis and leprosy. There's also a question about whether she fell in love with other women in her adulthood, um, or indeed in her girlhood. And that's something that's almost important possible to decode i think because of the era's tendency for passionate female friendships and you know the terms in which they're expressed but she did tend to have one one at a time one terribly close um woman friend or in the case of you know, jane claire her stepsister and to be really quite gullible where they were concerned to be quite clingy and prepared to kind of have quite an abuse, emotionally abusive relationship and keep going back for more. Biographers have strong views on either side of that argument. I don't have a strong view. I think it's unclear and I think Mary herself was probably very unclear about it. I think she was, yeah, somewhere on a continuum at a time when such things were even more unthinkable than free love with a man. Um, so, yeah, those are things that I think we could add into the usual picture of Mary. So finally, after um, unpicking Mary's brain for um, so long, almost two years, is that right? That yes. To write the book? yes. Um, what conclusions have you come to on her? I think the conclusions I've come to are that she was extremely able, willy-nilly. She worked extremely hard. She was quite an unlucky person. She did have a lot of bad luck. We lost was pretty normal in those days. Bereavement was very normal. Loss of children was very normal. Nevertheless, she she does seem to have missed out sort of over and over, really. She, but she had a lot of courage. She she kept going. Of course, what else can one do? 
you know, unlike her half-sister Fanny, she didn't kill herself. She, yeah, she wanted to keep going. So I, I came to the conclusion that I'd really like to have known her. I'd really have liked her as a friend. I think she'd been a great friend. She'd have been interesting, funny, witty, scatty, charming, good at going shopping, as she, all these things that she is in her letters. Uh, loyal and steady. I think she would have been st a steady person. And I suppose I'd like to, if I was going to make any argument in her defence, I would like to say, look for her steadiness. So Fiona, thanks very much for your time. And your book, which is In Search of Mary Shirley, is out in January 2018. That's right. Thank you very much, Ellie. So that was Fiona Sampson talking to Ellie Cawthorn. In Search of Mary Shelley, The Girl Who Wrote Frankenstein, is out now in the UK, published by Profile. And in the US, it's due out in June, published by Pegasus. Meanwhile, you can read a written version of this interview in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's edition, you'll find articles on Julius Caesar, Churchill's Darkest Hour, The Spanish Flu, Nefertiti and a whole lot more. Look out for it in all good news agents and our digital formats now. Well, that's about it for today, but please do listen in on Monday when we're going to be talking about prisoners of war with Claire Makepeace. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.